Well, in the next few weeks, we're going to do a series called The Most Important Part of You, which begs the question, what is the most important part of you? Uh, we have many, bo- many parts to who we are. We have a body, and of course, that's very important. And if you keep that body healthy and eat right and exercise, that's good. In fact, your body will affect your attitude and your outlook, and it actually affects your relationship to God. And we're going to talk about that in, in the coming weeks. But if you look at commercials today, maybe the body's become too important. I had never noticed the neck being a problem until I saw commercials about ugly necks. You know, I'm, I'm starting to look at people's necks now. Is that an ugly neck? Or, I, I never thought of that, you know. Maybe we've gone too far. The body is important, but it's not the most important part of you. You have a mind. Having a clear mind, a mind filled with good things is very important. You know, get yourself educated and put the right stuff in there. I think, therefore, I am. The mind is hugely important, but is it the most important part? Can you have a good mind and still be missing something? According to Prevagen, the most important part of you is your brain, and that's pretty important. How about your relationships? How important are those? Or how about your attitude? This is a huge question. You parents... You need to know what is the most important part of that child. Is it their body, their mind, their attitude? How about what you own or your possessions and income and success? Is that the most important part of you? So for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about this. And I'm going to suggest that the most important part of you is awfully easy to neglect. But it is, if it's wrong, then none of these other things will be really that good. You can have a great body and a good mind and a good brain and a great attitude and success relationships and still none of these are the most important. So I'm going to suggest today that the most important part of you is your soul. The word soul is a very important word in the Bible and it's a word that carries really several meanings and it's a common word today. We hear about soul stirring music. Well, what is that? Or I have a soul mate. What's that mean? Derek Jeter was given the title, the soul of the Yankees. And now he's going to buy the Marlins. Go figure. We hear about the soul of the nation or the heart and soul of the team. Psalm 23, he restores my soul. What is it? And is it the most important part of you? Some of you may want to argue with me on this over the next few weeks, and that's okay. Uh, We can debate that. When someone dies, we say, God rest his soul. What's that mean? And can you sell your soul? If someone asks you to explain what is it, I suspect we might have a hard time with defining it. But we do sense that there is something about us that tells us we are more than mind, we are more than brain, we're more than body or even attitude. We know there's something more about us, something deeper. You are a living soul. And the focus of this series is what does that soul need? Today's Resurrection Sunday, obviously, and we celebrate something that is one of the deepest needs that comes from deep within each one of us. Every one of you has this need, and the deepest part of you, the most important part of you, your soul needs an eternal future. And that's what the resurrection makes possible, and that's why we celebrate the fact that God in the form of Jesus died on the cross, was buried, rose again, conquering death to live for eternity, and he is the way for us to live eternally as well. We have a future and we have a hope. Your soul was made for that future. Now, other creatures can live happily for today and not think about tomorrow. Your dog does not think about the future. He may be smart and he may be cuddly and your best friend, but he does not think about tomorrow. He does not worry about tomorrow. We do. Your cat, eh, who cares what a cat thinks? Anyway. (laughs) But what is the difference between your pet and you? 
We are made in the image of God, and God, being eternal, has put that urge for an eternal future deep within each one of us. The Bible says God has set eternity in the human heart. And that's something that is in all of us. This life is not all there is. We just know it instinctively. Every civilization in history has known that there's something beyond the grave. When people leave a job, sometimes we say, they say, well, there was no future in it. And at the same time, when say something like, it's crushing my soul. Soul-crushing jobs are often futureless jobs. There's no hope. A dog never says, well, I'm going to leave this family because there's no future for me here. Only humans, you know, think about what's next. So here's the problem. Even though we have this deep need for eternity, this deep sense, we live inside these fleshly bodies that are not eternal. The prophet says, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. What's that mean, people are grass? It means we're temporary. Grass withers, it doesn't last. That person sitting next to you is grass. He or she is deteriorating. That person sitting next to you is dying. Happy Easter, you know. George Burns, you have to be a little old to remember him. He lived to be about 150, and he said, you know you're old when everything hurts, and what doesn't hurt doesn't work. I like that. He also said, I don't date women my own age. There are no women my own age. But here's my favorite, and I'm not sure who said this, but I love this. When I was younger, all I wanted was a BMW. Now I don't care about the W. Got to think about that. We're grass, but we have something in us, something in our soul, in our hearts that there's more. God has said eternity in the human heart. Animals don't have eternity in their heart, only humans, because we're made in the image of an eternal God. Now, Easter holds a lot of memories for me, as I know it does for many of you, and most of them are good. But there's one Easter that I will never, ever forget. It was about 12 years ago now. We had a family in our church in Rockford. Uh, the dad was a successful real estate man. Mom was a stay-at-home mom with three beautiful children, two girls and a little boy. Just a beautiful family. The little boy had some severe disabilities, and they knew his life on earth would be shortened. And he did pass away at the age of three. His mother spoke at the funeral. It was amazing. And she gave a powerful testimony that spoke of faith and hope and resurrection. And the only way she could do that was because she knew there was a future. She knew there was something more. She had eternity in her heart. And because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, she knew that, she would have, that he would have life in the face of death. A few months after that funeral, this young mother got pregnant as expecting their third girl. And she had a difficult pregnancy, spending a large part of it on bed rest, and she went to the hospital to give birth on Easter Sunday. That afternoon, I drove over to the hospital to see how things were going, and there I found out that they had their third girl. But during the delivery, the placentas tore from the uterus, and the mother started bleeding. And they frantically tried to stop it, and they, they said they used something like 400 sponges to stop the bleeding. They were unsuccessful. She lost consciousness, never regained it, and she died about a month later. But that Easter Sunday, she gave birth to a beautiful baby girl. I will never forget that Easter, a day of life and a day of death. And this is a day where we're drawn to those two realities. On one hand, we have to think about death. Our bodies are grass. Even Jesus died, and we will die unless Jesus comes first. 
And we have to come to grips with that reality and the implications. One of the oldest and wisest words of wisdom is to start with the end in mind. And that goes for your life. Start with the end in mind. Are you ready for your funeral? Are you preparing for it? See, I know that's kind of depressing and maybe this is creeping you out. But there is no empty grave without the cross. And today, we celebrate the demise of death. Are you ready for that day? There's various ways people deal with their mortality. Uh, Two aging actresses and longtime friends, Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin, were discussing death in a magazine interview. Tomlin was born in 1939. She's now 78 years old. She recalled a time when she was four years old, visiting her grandmother in rural Kentucky, and a little girl had died, and they had the body laid out in the house like they used to do in those days. And everyone is ooing and eyeing over here. And Tomlin said, death, death did not make sense to me. It didn't make sense then, and it doesn't make sense to me now. It's just confusion is one way to react to death. Jane Fonda was born in 1937, so she's right around the 80 mark. And she said, I feel the opposite. The past few years, I've made a real point of cozying up to death and making it a friend. That's what I always do with things that frighten me. Death is inevitable, so why not make peace with it? I'm not scared of it at all. So make death a friend. We now have a trend of happy funerals. In England, according to the BBC, Monty Python's song, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, has become England's most popular song played at memorial services. I'd never heard of that song, so I googled it, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. Do you know where that is sung in the movie? It is sung during the crucifixion. While Jesus is hanging on the cross, they're all singing, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. It's a spoof. Make death happy, a friend. We use euphemisms to make death a little friendlier, pro-choice, makes abortion sound so good. Life insurance sounds a lot better than death insurance, and right to die makes it sound like a privilege. Make it attractive. I don't know about you, but that doesn't work for me. Death is not attractive, no no matter how people try to dress it up. I doubt if any of you got up this morning and said, you know, I'd kind of like to die today. There's avoidance. It's another way to deal with it. Just don't think about it. Preachers, don't preach about it. Some redefine it. There's a popular poem for funerals. It says this, I did not leave you at all. I'm still with you. I'm in the sun and in the wind. I'm even in the rain. I did not die. I'm with you all. In other words, it didn't really happen. The most popular visited page on Poetic Expression website says, death is nothing at all. I've only slipped away into the next room. Redefine it. There's different ways to deal with it. But there's only one historical, sane way to deal with it, and that is to conquer it and defeat it through resurrection. Only one person has defeated death for good. And our souls know deep down there's something beyond this life. God put eternity in our hearts, and Jesus makes that eternity a reality. Now, our high school youth and junior high youth have been studying the Gospel of John. And John records the life of Jesus, and he gives seven signs to show who Jesus is. And in John 11 is the climactic and most dramatic sign where Jesus gets word that Lazarus, his friend, is sick. Jesus doesn't go to him immediately. He intentionally waits until Lazarus dies. Four days he's been dead. And Jesus wants to make sure everybody knows he's really dead, no doubt. So he goes to Bethany, talks to Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, and it says when Mary reached the place where Jesus saw, was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. You could have healed him. 
When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. No avoidance here by Jesus. No happy songs. He's not making death a friend. In fact, says Jesus deeply moved in spirit and troubled is a, too soft of a translation. The origin of that word carries the connotation of anger, even outrage. And the word trouble carries the idea of shaking, angry and upset, shuddering in the face of death. He is so mad, he's shaking. You ever get that mad? Here's Jesus in the face of death. Verse 38 says, once more, deeply moved, angry and shaken. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Such a sweet little verse. No, it wasn't a sniffle. It's literally burst into tears. He's sobbing. So you have this violent reaction by the Son of God. And you have to wonder, what does Jesus know about death that Jane Fonda does not? And I think it's safe to say Jesus' attitude is not that death is a friend. It is an enemy. It is awful. It is not God's will. And you cannot redefine it. You cannot avoid it. Well, my grandma was hurting and she wanted to die. Yeah. Because of the curse of death, she got old. So Jesus gives permission to be angry. We know this is not what God intended. God did not place death in our hearts. He put eternity there. And so we know deep down, in the most important part of us, we were not made to die. Verse 38, Jesus once more, deeply moved, and once again, angry and shaking, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said, but Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time he has a bad odor, for he's been there for four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Jesus defeats death. Now, as Christians, we understand both sides. We understand the impulse to celebrate because of the resurrection. Death has been defeated. But we also are real, and we recognize the need to mourn, to hate death, to be angry. It is an enemy. 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul says, We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We live in this tension of sin-cursed death and resurrection hope. That young, faithful mother who spoke at her son's funeral was sorrowful, but also rejoicing. She had eternity in her heart. She knew that someday she would see her son again, and indeed, now she is. A few chapters later, Jesus said, Verily, truly, I say to you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. He's talking to the disciples. He's warning them, there's going to be some tough times. You're going to suffer loss. You'll have trials. You're going to see loved ones die. You'll see the death of marriages. You'll see the death of friendships. And death is just all around. You'll see innocent children die. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Jesus will die, but they will see him again. You parents, um, do you remember the birth of your child? When we had our children, we had Lamaze classes. They still have those? 
in those days, we were not to use the word pain. Pain was negative. Jesus apparently did not know about Lamaze classes. He talks about pain. And we husbands were the coaches, and I was the coach my wife so that she wouldn't have any pain. And the coaching consisted mostly of telling her to breathe. You know, that kind of thing. And the goal was no drugs, no pain medication, and just breathe. I'm still not sure how telling mom to breathe, which she's been doing all her life anyway, would prevent pain when the object the size of a bowling ball is coming out of her body. I never quite got that, but they were the experts. So for 17 hours, I encouraged my wife to breathe, and to me, it looked like she was having pain, but don't use that word. And then Jesus says, when the baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy. That a child is born. And that's what happens for the disciples. Jesus died, and there was pain, but he rose again. The disciples had joy, and that's what will happen for you. Pain for a while, but joy is coming. In some traditions, the Sunday after Easter is Holy Humor Sunday. It's a day to laugh. We win. A joke was played on Satan. He lost. He thought he won. Death thought they finally got Jesus. Ha! The joke's on them. And so they just spend Sunday telling jokes and playing gags on each other. Where, oh, death is your victory. Where, oh, sting. We laugh in the face of the enemy. Do you know why I tell bad jokes, by the way? It's not fun to humiliate yourself. I mean, it's not fun to be embarrassed and all that. But there's two reasons. Number one, I don't know any good ones, and you don't give me any good ones. And the second reason, I think there should be some smiles in church because we win. And the joy will be yours. I got my AARP magazine last week, which is another reminder of death. <laughs> and it had some jokes because April is National Humor Month. Well, that's cool because Easter is in April this year. And their jokes are worse than mine. Here's this. Here's one. What is the difference between death and taxes? Congress does not meet every year to make death worse. How about this one? My wife treats me like I'm a god. So she worships and honors and obeys you? No, she ignores me until she wants something. Ooh. We have hope, we have future, and we laugh and rejoice. There's an old sermon entitled, It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Friday looks bad, all is lost, hopeless, crucifixion, dark. And maybe your life feels like that a little bit today, and your life is just crud right now terrible challenges, and you're down, but Sunday's coming. We know that. 2 Corinthians 4, 1, Paul says, do not lose heart. Ephesians 3, do not be discouraged. Sunday's coming. That most important part, of that deepest part of you needs to know there's a better tomorrow, an eternal future. Psalm 27 says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. He's going to do something. Paul said, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain because of Jesus' victory. The Hebrew writer says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Psalm 30 says, weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. And Philip Yancey, I think, sums it all up, says, God weeps with us so that we may someday laugh with him. The early Christians developed a way of greeting each other that would remind them what happened on Easter Sunday. I don't know, we may have done this last year. I know we've done it in the past year. 
But uh, we're going to do this, and if you want to get excited doing this, that would be okay. okay. I've always thought it a little bit strange that people get all fired up and express more emotion over a game that really doesn't matter. You know, like the Cubs winning the World Series, so what? doesn't matter. And, but, but we'll get excited about that and not get excited about the most important event in history. So we're going to do this greeting, and if you want to do it with some energy, that would be okay. Okay, let's stand up, and we're going to do this. I am the first line. You're the second line. All right? I'm, can you outshout me? Jesus Christ is risen. Jesus Christ is risen.